0: We are hugely honoured to be with Michael Francis today. I've been following his stuff for years. I've watched his stuff, I've watched Sammy's stuff, I've watched them go ballistic on YouTube. He's gonna be doing a tour of the UK. I'm gonna be getting involved in the Manchester and Liverpool dates. Can't wait for that. It's gonna commence in London early July. All the links for Michael's channel and the tour dates will be in the description box below this video. And. You may have seen him on Mike Tyson's channel, you may have seen him on my friend Patrick Valuetainment's channel, and on and on and on and on it goes. Tens of millions of views, his own channel right now, he's marching towards a million, his book is out, which has got almost a thousand reviews on Amazon UK, it's Mafia Stories book, business tips as well, so endless content you could dive into with what Michael's doing. and. He's kind of like the last of a generation, really, of people from that era. You've watched these movies, like The Sopranos, Goodfellas, and he has his Mob Movie Mondays where he analyzes and reviews them. And um, there's not many people left alive, even when Michael was in the newspaper of the, was it like 50 or 60? um, They're nearly all dead, aren't they?
1: Uh, 48 of them are dead out of 50. One of them is alive, but he's still in prison. And then there's me. So, you, yeah. pretty fortunate.
0: Well, huge thank you for coming and, yes. and being with us today. Is that, it's actually my 20th year anniversary of my SWAT team from Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> Congratulations. I'll tell you how you recognised that on a train ticket this morning. So, really?
2: Yeah, he looked down and went, yeah, it's
0: been
2: 20 years since been, uh, what, the SWAT team, wasn't it? SWAT team, yeah. Wow. But
0: you stopped over in Arizona on your journey in the federal prison system. Yes. Could you describe what happened there?
1: Well, I was supposed to go, as part of my plea agreement, they were supposed to send me to Terminal Island, which is a prison near my home in California. But as usual, Bureau of Prisons, you know, well, it was too crowded in Terminal Island. It's too crowded in every federal prison. That's the excuse they used. And they sent me to uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale, actually. It was a fairly new prison. And I was there for about six months. And um, while I was there, uh, this whole Fortune magazine article came out. And I'll never forget, Sean, Jennifer, you'll appreciate this. This big, well, you're not from the States, but I hope you understand. This big, heavy-set lieutenant calls me into his uh, uh, office, and he shows me the article. I didn't even know it came out, right? 50 biggest and wealthiest mob bosses in the country. And he said, don't you think you mafia guys are taking over my prison? I said, what are you talking about? You know, and he shows me the article. And I said, look, I said, you can lock me in my cell. Just make sure I get my visits. I says something to eat and a phone call and you'll never hear from me again. So he said, okay, and he locked me down. And I was uh, locked up for about two weeks while they did all the promotional tour on the magazine. And I stayed there for about six months um, until they finally got me to Tumor Line. What year was that then? That was in uh, 1986.
0: So this was in Scottsdale, 1986. Yes. I think Sheriff Joe Arpaio was running the jail system
1: well that was the, that was the state system yeah. i was in the federal system yeah. Yeah, so he didn't get involved in that so what was it like when the heat went up then were you were yeah. housed it was you mean the real heat or the yeah it was hot it was yeah. 120 degrees it was a miserable place to be in, on
0: the uk uh, temperature schedule that's almost 50 degrees yeah we yeah.
1: and my wife was coming out every weekend uh, with the kids to see me you know but she had she was in scottsdale which is beautiful you know, um, that's what this. Yeah, <laughs> you get through it, Sean. You know. What
0: about what about the uh, coming into the cell? Was it the old swamp cooler?
1: Uh, no, because it was a fairly new prison. It was just built, so it had air conditioning. You know, it wasn't bad that way. But yeah. you know, after a while, they were all the same. Yeah.
2: So, so you ranked number eighteen in the magazine. Yes. How did you feel about that?
1: You know, it's, listen. It's never good to get that kind of high profile publicity when you're in prison they look at you differently as far as the guards are concerned you know the inmates uh everybody's coming up to you with a deal you know michael listen and you know it's funny sean you probably experienced this all these guys come and they tell you the next time i'm not going to make a mistake i know exactly what i'm going to do and i learned you know what my answer was well who did you learn from everybody in here got caught so how are they going to teach you anything new you know but these guys you know, they always, they always got a scheme or something on their head, but...
0: So how many years total have you
1: served in, in Utah life? I did just about eight years.
0: So watching your videos and you you've not really told many prison stories, like what you saw in the prisons, various prisons you were in. What kind of crazy stuff did you observe or experience?
1: You know, you know what I learned in there, Sean? Everybody that never got any respect on the street wants all the respect in there. So my dad, he was a very wise guy and he told me, he says, Michael, I'm gonna give you three things that are gonna help you tremendously when you go to prison. Because he knew one day I was gonna go, right? I said, what's that, dad? He said, know how to say please, thank you, and excuse me. He says, you know, you bunk into somebody, excuse me. He says, somebody hands you something, you know, thank you. Do you mind if I cut in line, please, you know? And you know what, he was so right because I saw things happen in there when guys tried to push their weight around. People don't take it kindly in there, you know. I remember one guy getting hit over the, uh, the head with a, uh, a mop wringer, one of those 30-pound mop wringers, all steel, just boom, smashed his head open. I, I saw a lot of things in there that, uh, where guys lose control and, you know, stabbings and all that kind of stuff. It happens quite a bit.
0: What's the violence over? Predominantly, is it drugs and debts, things like that?
1: Yeah, it's stupid things, you know. You don't gamble in there. I used to tell guys that came in, I said, if you gamble, you make sure you got the money to pay it. I said, because in here, you're going to pay for it. <clears throat> so a lot of guys over and but guys gamble in there. Stupid little gambling debts, a couple of hundred bucks, boom, get stabbed or get hurt for. You know, there's things in there you just don't engage in because they're problems.
2: Was there any attempts
1: on you? Huh? Was there any attempts on you? No, no attempts on me. The only time... uh I had a problem. It was an accident actually. One of the hot points in in prison are the telephones because everybody has a limited time on the phone and there's a line at times and if somebody's behind you and you're cutting into their time, that's bad. They're trying to talk to their family, their lawyer, whatever. So I'm on the phone and I was very respectful of that because I didn't want anybody taking my time. I hang up the phone, I walk through the dorm and somebody comes from, no, some, and boom, sideswipes me. And I, I, I was stunned for a minute, I look at him and the guy goes, I hit the wrong guy. He hit me by mistake, it was somebody else. He was a black guy, I don't mind saying it, you know. And he got "Oh, Michael, I'm so sorry. And I said, all right, don't worry about it, I understand. But here's what happened. That night, him and his guys came to me because they figured I was gonna hurt this guy. You know, he's a young guy, he's probably 23, 24. I said, there's no problem. It was an accident. I, I get it. He's no, Michael, we know you guys. I said, I said, there's no problem. But since that time happened, anything that I wanted from this crew, they got. <laughs> anything at all, you know? So, you know, the, the, but that was the only time I have had a problem, nothing else. What especially.
0: was your favorite prison versus the worst prison you were in?
1: The best prison was Terminal Island. Terminal Island? Oh yeah, without a doubt. It was right on the water. I had a set up there like you couldn't believe, you know, it was just terrific. And uh, it was close to my house, so my wife could come, you know, three, four days a week. So, And that's why, as part of my deal, I knew home because in the federal system, they ship you everywhere. You can be 3,000 miles from your house. So it was very important when I made uh, the, uh, the plea agreement to get to the prison near my house. And finally, after about seven months, I was in Scottsdale. Then they finally honored that. I had my lawyer pushing, pushing, pushing. but. It was, it was, if you're going to do time, it was the best place in the system.
0: What was your least favorite? I
1: had a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, they had me in, uh, um, gosh, in, uh, I guess Pennsylvania was a tough one. It was a level six, it was a high level institution. And they had me in a condemned area in the basement for a while, for a couple of months. Was that like Supermax then? It was Supermax, yeah. And they, when, they were, when the feds were really squeezing me, they put me on what they call diesel therapy, where they ship you to all different prisons, you're in lockdown the whole time, you're changing it, and, and they just keep moving you around, just to break you. It's very, very tough, it's the toughest part. And uh, Oklahoma, El Reno was a sewer, I don't know how else to describe it, terrible place. Um, but I, I, I probably visited, I don't know, 10, 12, 13 prisons along the way, that many, yeah. There's why
0: were why they putting so much pressure on you to put you on want diesel to, therapy? They wanted me to cooperate.
1: You know, they wanted me to, they told me you're a dead man anyway when I walked away from, you know, you, the words all over the street, you're going to get killed, you're not going to last, cooperate with us, we'll put you in the witness protection program, you know, we'll help you. I didn't want to do that. You know, Sean, as you know, you, you took your share of hits. I take people out there that don't know us, don't even know what they're talking about, just make up things because they want views, you know, they want people to watch them. But... uh you know, I spoke with the government, but only to try to get them to leave me alone. You know, I didn't get on, to stand and testify against my former associates. I would never do that. And uh, when push came to shove, because I wouldn't do it, they threw me back in a prison for almost three years. Well, four through 35 months. And they kept me in lockdown in solitary for 29 months. Just me, solitary confinement. So. What
0: was your routine in solitary?
1: God, you know what it is? When I look back, it was like, I can't differentiate the days at a time. It's one long day. It's like the day that never ends. You know, but I saw a lot of guys not do well in that. You know, those lights go out at night. You hear a lot of moaning and groaning and crazy things, but I mean, I survived it, you know, I got through it okay.
0: Exercise, reading?
1: Yeah, exercise. I mean, I lost like uh, 20 pounds in there, you know, it was, what are you going to do? I, I didn't want to eat. You know, you lose your appetite, I ate cereal and bananas, and cup of soup, that was it. Um, but, you know, I was, that's where I, my, my faith really became important to me. I was into my faith big time. My wife, you know, was sending me tons of books, and uh, it turned out to be a good time for me, believe it or not.
2: Were you allowed visits in solitary? You're not allowed.
1: No, you get visits, you yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more restrictive, but you do get visits, yeah.
0: Is it behind the plexiglass?
1: Um, no, in the federal system, you go into the—it's a separate area. But you—you uh, you can get visits. No conjugal visits, in the federal system, none at all.
2: Have you had a, conj- a conjugal visit?
1: I mean, it, it, I, I, believe me, I would have paid to have one, but—but <laughs> but no, we didn't. any.
0: Where, where were they possible? I know some countries
1: still do it, but in the state the prisons, prisons, they do. Was it do.
0: California had them?
1: Uh, California state, yes. Mm, in the yeah. state system, you can get it. The feds, no. Yeah. So, I mean, I would have, gosh, I would have done anything to have that, you know, because th- what it is, you're going to, like, uh, an apartment for two days. Every hour, you got to come out and say hello to the guards, you know, but who cares? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> would you say that your journey before prison, you met more dangerous people, or you met more dangerous people in prison?
1: Probably outside of prison, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, when you're on the street, you know, you meet all sorts of, especially in my life, there was a lot of crazy guys, Sean, you know. The Roy DeMeos, of the, I could oh. talk about him, they're gone, but DeMeo, Greg Scarpa, you know. I don't want to say I was very close with him, but I was close with him because we were the same family. We were both captains, so we interacted a lot. Greg was a different kind of guy. You know, DeMeo, a couple of these guys were, you know, they're, they're not right upstairs, trust
0: So being in a room with them, then what's the aura line?
1: Well, you don't feel anything you know people you say well, were you scared of these guys i had no reason to be scared of them i mean look sean let me be honest we were all capable of taking care of ourselves i mean if i knew if somebody was going to hurt me i'm going to hurt them first i mean it's very simple i can do what they do the difference is they like doing it a lot <laughs> this is what they did this is how they solve problems for me if i had to do something i'm going to do it but it's not what i enjoyed you know, it's a whole different mindset.
0: So with the Mayo then, Murder Machine, is that accurate or has it been... In,
1: in the Gemini general? Club, yeah, it was pretty accurate. He was, uh, you know, he was a different kind of guy. Jen's not familiar, the
0: Gemini
2: Club?
1: The Gemini Club was his social club.
2: Okay.
1: And, you know, a lot of murders took place in the Gemini Club, mm-hmm. you know, orchestrated by him and his crew so uh and it had a reputation for that afterwards you know because jennifer at some point all of these things are found out Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of informants on the street the government has a lot of tools and weapons now in the united states to turn people and so anything you do you're in jeopardy of people knowing later on nothing is a secret anymore that's the that's the that's the downfall and the demise of that life no doubt
0: Do you think it's past its peak then, and like the cartels have took over, global dominance in...
1: I can't really speak for what's going on in Italy. I know they're very strong still in Italy. It's just the culture, it's part of the culture. I know um, Australia has a very strong group there. The United States, we still have a big presence, but the power structures that we had, the power bases, like the unions, and a lot of the, the political uh, contacts that we had have been taken away. So I'll give you an example. When I was on the street, there wasn't a day that went by when you didn't read in the newspaper some mob related thing, every day, every single day. Now I read the New York paper every day. Maybe every six months you'll see one story about what's going on on the street. So they're smart is that they went a lot, of, a lot more undercover You know, they're not out there like the Gaudis were at one point. But um, they just don't have the power it had before. What
2: was it like growing up in New York in the early 50s,
1: 60s? You know, for me, it was, I mean, it was a different lifestyle. My dad was underboss of the Colombo family. He was very high profile. He was always, excuse me, a major target of law enforcement. So we always had uh, law enforcement around us all the time. My dad was getting arrested. You know, it was a lot of that. Um, so I grew up in that environment where I hated the police. I hated government because I loved my father and I watched these people harassing him and our family. That's how I viewed it. Um, but it was a good time. You know, my dad, I mean, we used to go to the Copacabana ringside seats, you know, the Copa was a famous nightclub. Saw everybody from Sinatra to Sammy Davis to Bobby Darren, you name it. You know, these were regulars, people that we knew. So that was wonderful. You know, I, I enjoyed that. I had a lot of perks being, you know, with my dad. And then uh, the 60s were a tough era because that's when he went to trial three times and finally went off to prison, you know, after he got convicted. Um, I used to get a lot of nonsense at school. Your dad's a mafia dad because he was always in the newspaper, so I fight, you know, stuff like that. But, uh,
2: can to
1: ask, at what age did you recognize that your dad was a boss? Well, I mean, it, it, early on I knew it, because from the time I was five years old, my dad was in the limelight, but I didn't really understand it, and my dad didn't come into the house and say, let me explain what's going on, he never did that. He would keep everything outside, he wouldn't even talk about it in the house, so, so whatever I learned about him, I learned from the newspapers, I learned from other people, from observation, not from him directly. But I knew it early on, you know, and uh, I mean, look, there were times when I got my driver's license, I was 16, 17, I would leave the house. We had law enforcement circling the house all the time, watching our every move, and they would follow me. And I'd bring them on a chase, you know, a wild chase. I remember one time, Sean, I brought them on a wild chase everywhere, right? I get back to the house, these two guys ring my doorbell, and they tell my father what I was doing. My dad wasn't, he never really hit me, except for that day. Do you realize what you're messing with? Do you want to go to jail? Are you cra- he was so upset with me. Don't you ever do that? You respect these guys, they're dangerous. He really gave it to me. So I never did that again. But, um, you know, I had a lot of incidents like that.
0: So how mobbed up was Sinatra?
1: <laughs> you know, I want to make it clear. He wasn't controlled by the mob. He didn't have to pay them, and, you know, he wasn't at the but when a favor was needed, he did it, you know? So he, he, he knew that. And obviously with the whole Kennedy thing, he was a connection to the Kennedys for the guys in Chicago and around. There's no question about that. But I wanna make it clear, he wasn't mobbed up in a sense where he had to pay money and tribute and all that, that, that wasn't the case. But look, I must've seen Frank 20, 30 times in my life, you know, in different places. There's a show on right now. I don't know if it's here yet, but it probably will be. It's called The Offer, and it's actually the prequel to uh, The Godfather, the making of The Godfather. Very good show. If you get to watch it, watch. It's on Paramount+. Plus, But it tells the whole story simultaneously of Joe Colombo and the Italian American Civil Rights League and the influence that he had on The Godfather, and then it tells about how The Godfather got made. It's very well done, but uh, that was my era. I was right in the middle of all of that, so to me, it's even more interesting. And they're getting it somewhat right, a little bit. Uh, you know, they take dramatic liberty, but um, Sinatra was uh, not portrayed well in this. You know, not portrayed well because he he did get help getting into the movie from here from from here to eternity, because if you well you're young, but his career was in trouble. This movie kind of brought him back, and he needed a little help to get the part, and he got the help. But he didn't like that to be shown in the movie that the mob guys had to help him get a part. He didn't like that, so he was upset about the movie. But um, uh, he, he, was, he was a friend, let's put it that way.
2: He did fund a film with mob money,
1: didn't you? Me? Yes. But it was the best thing I ever did because I met my wife on that film. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was filming it in Florida and we had a lot of you know, gas tax money at that time. So I actually funded the whole film with gas money. What was the film about? It was a breakdance movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Smokey, it was a lot of music, dance. It was a gang-related movie, but uh, it was with music and dance. And it was Smokey Robinson and and Leon Kennedy, two guys in there, brought me the script. And we made it in Florida, and I met a beautiful young girl who's now my wife for 37 years. Congrats. Yes, so it was the best money I ever spent. Yes. (laughs)
0: How was the relationship with your family and the Kennedys established?
1: We, di- we didn't really have a relationship with our particular family, the Columbo's. It was more out of uh, Chicago. He had a relationship there. Joe Kennedy, you probably noticed, he was a bootlegger. He was heavily involved with the mob, even though you know, it's not brought out there, but he was. And what happened, it was a very tight race uh, when Kennedy was running for president with him and Nixon. And he needed Illinois and Chicago in order to win the race. And we delivered it to him. And in return, we were supposed to have access to the White House and the heat from Cosa Nostra Mafia was supposed to be taken off. Just the opposite happened. Bobby Kennedy became attorney general and he went rampant on the mob. And that's where the problem came in. People were very upset because you don't do that. You don't make a deal and then, you know, we deliver the presidency to you. And then you you go back on it, not only do you go back on it, you come after us for it. So listen, Sean, I, I will tell you this, there are classified documents about the Kennedy assassination that have never been released, they're classified. In my opinion, the reason they won't release them is because the truth is going to come out that the mob was able to get to a sitting president and the CIA, the Secret Service, they don't want anybody to know that. So they keep it under wraps but obviously that wasn't my time. I mean, I was 10 years old when he was killed, but I heard from everybody the story afterwards. My father was, that was, he was right there during that time, all the people that I was involved with. And I asked different people at different times who told me the same exact story.
0: So do you believe he
1: was killed by the mob? 100%, okay. it's
0: my belief. Do you think the CIA had an interest in getting him out of the way, no matter who performed the assassination?
1: I I think so. From what I heard, the CIA wasn't happy with him. Remember, the CIA came to us on more than one occasion to help them. When they wanted to assassinate Castro in Cuba, they came to us. Came to Johnny Roselli in in Vegas to come to the guys in Chicago. We were setting that up. Lucky Luciano during the war, in order to win his freedom, Mario Lansky made the arrangement where we helped him at the docks, and we also helped him in, in Italy. You know, we, a great part of winning the war was because of what the mob helped the government. So, you know, they've come to us a couple of times. So it's not out of the question that they work with us. Mm-hmm. Trust me.
0: And why do you think Bobby Kennedy aggressively pursued the mafia? Was, was his old man had a stroke at that point? Or was he not? Because wasn't the old man guiding the kids?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I can't explain that, Sean. I don't know why he took that at it. Because if, if, again, I don't, I don't know how old you are, Sean. Is this way before your afraid. time? All right, so you were young then, but, but I, I, don't, I can't understand that, I really can't. Because up to that point, J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, would never even admit that it existed. And the reason for that is because we had dirt on him. He was a cross-dresser, he did some crazy things, you know, and we knew about it. And so we told him, you don't even admit it, you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. And he did, he never even would admit It, it was Bobby Kennedy that started with Velocci and started to bring all of this about at the hearings and then he went after Hoffa. So I don't know, I can't explain it. I I think he just hated us and nobody could control him. Even his brother, who was the president, couldn't control him.
0: So what are your thoughts on Saran Saran? I
1: I, I had never heard that that was mob related in any way. So I don't know what happened there. You know, maybe he just didn't like him. We had a guy on who's researched
0: it for decades and he said, the, the, the wounds didn't match, you know. Yeah, he got one off or whatever many shots Saran got off, but he had other wounds as well from other distances. So there's, there's lots of conspiracy theories.
1: Yeah, and, and our government, we try to keep things. Anything that's going to make them look bad, they don't want to come out, you know. But I mean, even the Kennedy killing, the way that happened, it shouldn't have happened. Yeah. You know, they should have been a lot more prepared for that. I mean, how do you let a? It's just common sense. How do you let a president ride in an open coach like that? You don't do that. Do have, that was number one mistake.
0: Jeff, thoughts on the other killings from that era, like uh, Malcolm X, Martin
1: Luther King? Again, not mob-related. So I can't really speak to that. You know, I know we had nothing to do with that. At least I never heard we did. Yeah. So what was your
2: father's relationship with Mary
1: Monroe? <laughs> <laughs> well. I'll tell you how i found out what he told me anyway i never knew anything about it but i went to visit him after my mom died and this was after 2012 and we were just talking and it just came up i said dad you know i want to ask you something i don't want to insult you because my dad had an ego right i says in the 60s the government came after you with a, a vengeance i said a vengeance i said you were important but you weren't the main guy at that time, you know, you had Colombo, you, you had all the major guys around that were bosses. He was an under. I said, Why did they come after you with a vengeance like this? I said, Explain it. He said, All right, now that your mother passed away, I can tell you. He said, I wouldn't tell you when your mother was alive. I said, Okay, great. He said, I was in the store club, which is a famous club in New York. Frank Costello owned a piece of it, he was a boss. And uh, one day, Marilyn Monroe happened to walk into the club. And so Frank said, do you want to meet Marilyn to my dad? And he said, yeah. So they met, they had an affair. According to my, my dad's story, according to my dad. And then he tells me, Mike, you're not going to believe what happened. I said, what? He said, she, she told me this directly from my mom. I said, what? He said, she was having relations with, uh, with Bobby Kennedy. And we know that to be true. Bobby and John both had her. And uh, while they were doing their thing, she called out my name and Bobby Kennedy got very insulted he jumped on the phone with J. Edgar Hoover and he said I don't know who this Sonny Franzese is but put him in jail forever and he says I said dad he said Mike I'm telling you that's the truth that's what happened because he said I never had anything to do with Bobby Kennedy Hoover was leaving me alone all of a sudden out of nowhere I become the number one target So I'm thinking about it, I said, Dad, you know, it makes sense. There could be some validity to that story. And that's what he stood by. So, makes sense.
0: What was Donald Trump's involvement in things over the years, with the unions and getting things built?
1: You know, here's the thing, I've been asked this a hundred times, you know, was Donald Trump mobbed up? And my answer was, Every contractor in the city of New York had to deal with mob gang. We controlled all the unions. You want to get something built at a price? You had to come to us. Trump was no exception. So in that regard, yes, he dealt with us. not I don't know him personally. I only met Donald once. I met him with Roy Cohen, who was his attorney, and I was doing some things with Roy. We met briefly in a club. Donald may not, before now, may not even remember that. But So I had no involvement. But did he deal with us? Of course he did. Everybody did. They had to. So, you know, I mean, Helmsley, all of it, you know, Guterman, the guy that I was involved with, they all had to deal with us, so. But anything beyond that, no.
0: And did Roy Cohn try to rip you off?
1: Roy Cohn tried to rip me off, yes. When I got indicted, he came to me and he says, Michael, I can squash your indictment. There's no squashing federal indictments. So I said, okay, Roy, what do you want? He said, you give me $250,000. I said, 250,000 and the indictment's gonna go away. He said, yeah. I said, Roy, I'm gonna do better than that. I said, name your price, half a million, a million, put it in escrow. I said, when the indictment is squashed, take it all. I said, cause if I gotta go to trial, it's gonna cost me millions. So it's worth it. Well, we don't do it that way. I said, I know you don't because you're gonna rob me the, the other way. And that was the end of that. <laughs>
0: So I've learned then it's all about your lawyer, you know, it, it goes a long way in court. I used a lawyer that the New Mexican Mafia referred to me, which helped me, he was like the lead lawyer for our case.
2: Uh-huh.
0: How did you keep Rudiani Giuliani well, at bay with your legal resources, who were they? Than? Well,
1: I'll tell you, I, I hired a guy by mm-hmm. name of John Jacobs, who had just left the U.S. Attorney's Office, went into private practice. and. I never knew I was going to be indicted in a Giuliani case. It was a different district. It was a Southern district in New York. That was a total surprise to me, honestly. Um, But I knew I was going to be indicted in the Eastern district, which is Brooklyn, because that was really my locale. And I hired him right out of the U.S. Attorney's Office because I figured he had information. They were investigating me for years. So I said, let me hire a guy that has knowledge. Uh, But then I get indicted with Giuliani first so now I got him. And I told him, I set him down, I said, John, look, my father got railroaded. He was framed for a crime he didn't commit. I said his lawyer had a lot to do with him going to jail because he wouldn't put witnesses on the stand. He didn't hire an investigator. I said, I am very motivated myself to fight this case along with you. I said, so there's times you're going to tell me something. I may not agree with you. And there's times I will agree with you. And so I was very proactive in defending myself. I got my own investigators, I work. My wife will tell you I work all day long just fighting because that's what it takes to win a federal racketeering case. It's very hard to defend these cases, very hard. And uh, so I beat the Giuliani case. Everybody, Giuliani told me you're gonna get 100 years if I convict you. Uh, He said, double what your father got.
0: How did that feel when he said that to you? Because that's the rest of your life, isn't
1: it? Yeah, but I got arrogant with him at that point because my attitude was different. When he said that to me, he says, uh, he said it to my lawyer, me, he says, if, if Franzis gets convicted, he's going to get double what his father got. My father got 50, he's going to get 100 years. So I looked at him, I say, hey, Rudy, bring it on. I beat you guys four times already because I had beat four trials. Is let's go for round five, right? It was a stupid thing to do, but <laughs> you don't want to have How old were you
0: at that point? I was like uh, thirty. And inwardly, you weren't thinking, "Shit, I've rolled dice too many times." <laughs> yeah. No,
1: no, I was, I was a fighter. Right. Okay. You now it came to, I didn't like them so much. I'm fighting. <laughs> you know, I was a fighter. I said, "There's no way you're taking me. You're not taking me without a fight." So, and we fought him and we beat him. he put a lot of people away. He? Huh? Rudy put oh really of my wood. God! Hey. He put everybody away. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he—you got to give him the credit or the blame, whatever side you're on. But yeah, he—he he was a guy. The racketeering laws had been on the books for 10 years, but they didn't use it. They didn't know how to use it. He figured it out. you got to give him credit for that. You know, I mean, he, uh, he put a lot of guys away, no doubt.
0: Did you do an interview with him, with Patrick, or...?
1: 30 years, later,
0: yeah.
1: Thirty years later, a friend of mine who has a big radio show, Joe Pagliarulo, says, Mike, you know, I think I can get you and Rudy on the show. <laughs> I said, you sure you want to do that, Joe? He, he said, yeah. So we go on together, and it was, it was great. Because Rudy said, you know what? I've been watching you for 25 years. I believe you're sincere. He said, I believe it's a real transformation. He said, I'm watching you. And so things really calmed down. You want to hear something even more crazy? He wrote the foreword for my new book. <laughs> Did Yes. And I, I Sean, I, Jennifer, I was amazed at what a forward he wrote. Wow. Yeah. What
2: did was, he write? Huh? What did he write? Well, yeah,
1: you, you, you gotta got to read it. I'll, I'll give you a copy. Of, I don't have the copy, but I'll give you a PDF of the book. You got to read what he wrote. He made I, I was like shocked because I said, man, I don't know what this guy's going to write. But no, he did a he did a great job. He, he just he's, you know <laughs> believing that I was sincere and complete turnaround. And uh, but he also talked about all the guys he put away. You know.
0: Was he ever targeted for assassination for putting all those guys away? Yes.
1: Yeah. You know, you know, different than the mafia in, in Italy, we didn't go after law enforcement. Families and law enforcement, we don't touch. Giuliani was an exception. They were really talking about. I don't know if there. And he knows this. I don't know if there was ever any real plan put in place, but they were talking about it. He was hated. He was hated.
0: Did you tell him that? I told him that, yeah. What was his
1: reaction? He said, I knew that, Michael. Oh, he? he said, Well, I said, Were you worried, Rudy? He said, No. He said, Well, I had no protection around me. But uh, you know who Geraldo Rivera is? Yeah. yeah. He was he was targeted too. Everybody hated him. I told him that, he turned white. Yeah. I was on his television show with him. I said, Geraldo, there was only two guys that We really hated enough to kill. And he said, Really who? I said, Rudy. He said, Oh, that makes sense. He said, Who was the second one? I said, You. Me? (laughs) He was shocked. They said, Yeah, you, Araldo, you. And that was, yeah, he didn't want to talk anymore after that.
0: You guys were okay with Montel Williams, though?
1: Yeah, Montel Williams. Everybody else, we got it. We understood.
0: (laughs) So, when did you start your YouTube channel?
1: Pandemic hits. I got 40-some-odd dates, speaking dates, that were postponed, obviously. First time in 20-some-odd years, I'm not traveling, I don't know, I don't know what to do, right? Actually, it was nice, me and my mm-hmm. wife, we got to spend time together, it was great. And then my team said, Mike, why don't you start a YouTube channel? I said, I'm not into that, you know, social media and all that. No, nah, let's do it, we got no. And that's how we started it. It was like an accident, you know? Uh, but we, we got very fortunate. It, it, uh, it took off pretty well.
2: What? Have you been trolled? Huh? Have you been trolled? Uh,
1: I think so, yeah. I don't <laughs> know all the terms. Uh, believe me, I don't know this. My wife handles social media, my team handles it. I don't know all the terms. I'm very... Uh, uh, I'm not very adept in that, let's put it that way. But I, 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 I found out one thing, and I'm sure you know this, Sean. Social media has exposed the lunacy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> people come out of nowhere saying the craziest things. You don't even know them, you don't know who they are. They make believe they're important and they know everything, they don't know anything. And other people listen to them and you can't control it. You know, it's, it's, part of the, it's, uh, it's part of the deal. If you're gonna be on social media, it's gonna happen.
0: What was your very first introduction to social media going back before YouTube?
1: I think, uh, gosh, I don't even remember. Twitter or Facebook, I'm not sure. I don't even know how it got started.
0: Had you been long out of the joint at that point?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, Yeah. it happened way, way later on. I don't even know how I started it, honestly. I don't remember.
0: And then people started asking you to interview you to go on nerd channels. Is that what what momentum started to build from there?
1: The very, three years ago, Patrick Bed David came to me and he had about 300,000 subs. I'll never forget. Uh, I didn't want to do it. It was chasing me. I don't know who he was. I had no idea, right? And he comes to my house. He was like two hours late. He comes, drives up in a Bentley, he's two hours late. We had a, an appointment later on. They set up in my house. And I'm saying, where's this guy? You know, what am I doing here with this stuff? I, I had like no interest in it.
0: Patrick approaches you then, he yeah. shows up late. <laughs> you do your thing, you're thinking, who is this guy? But then it goes ballistic online. 10 yes. you know. Did you read the comments and stuff? Did this like start to change your life because all this, overwhelming amount of feedback and invitations to do things is coming in on the back of something that goes so viral?
1: I mean, I probably read some of the comments. I don't know, there's a lot of comments, but uh, what happened was, and and Patrick will admit, Patrick, by the way, is a dear friend of mine now. I love Patrick, we're doing things together. Um, But it it was that interview that made him decide to go with all these mob guys, because it blew up And then he started interviewing all the mob guys and became known for that, you know. Um, I think probably because of the success of that, I started to get a lot. I mean, we get a call a day. No question about it. People from all over, you know, and they're trying to get you on. And my team now is selective, you know, with what we do, because you can't be everywhere. But, um, you know, it kind of opened my eyes to, wow, this is, this is, uh, you get a lot of it. I will tell you this. And YouTube is not paying me for this, Google, but they should. Um, it's, the, it's the greatest platform in the world to be noticed. Everywhere I go now, even here, people coming up to me, I don't even know who they are. I, you know, I'm, I'm, So many people have come up to me already, and it's all because of YouTube. In the airport, people bump into you, hey, Michael, I know you. YouTube, best platform you can be on to become known, no doubt.
0: So in the beginning, now you mentioned the team, but in the beginning, were you trying to manage it all yourself?
1: Yeah. You and your wife? No, no, I had uh, because I wouldn't have done it. It, it, Sean, my wife will tell you, my team will tell you, they got to drag me in front of the camera to put content on. Not very technical. Oh, they drive me crazy. Oh, my God. It's all about content, content, content. Constant. So that's it, constant. I mean, if it was up to them, they'd have me doing it every day. But I just can't. I can't do it, I just can't, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it
0: sucks the life out of you if you do too much, doesn't it? Who, who came up with the idea of Mob Movie Mondays?
1: I'll tell you what happened. Uh, Buzzfeed, I think, Buzzfeed asked me to review movies and a platform called The Insider. And then all of a sudden we got 10, 15, 20 million views. <laughs> so I said, hey, this works. Let me do my own Mob Movie Monday, right? I think it was my wife that told me to do that. And she was right, yeah.
0: So looking at you know the early interviews you did when you're talking about Gravano and Gotti, there was, there was a bit of friction uh, to begin with and then you know, there was, I, I saw what you did with Patrick, then I saw him you know, on with you and he was screaming at you a bit and you, you were trying to keep you cool, but you always keep you cool, but then you did in a video saying you felt that you, you lost your cool, you know, what's your relationship with Sammy, how did it, let's go back to the very beginning, how did you first become aware of who Sammy was?
1: Well, I knew, you know, I mean, everybody knew the situation with him and Gotti. So, I mean, we knew it then. Um, I didn't really know him on the street. You know, we didn't have any interaction. Um, I had more interaction with John than I did with, I didn't have any with Sammy, actually. But um, I'm trying to think how it came about afterwards, how we finally, we connected afterwards. If he reached out to me or I reached out to him. Somehow somebody brought us together. Was it Patrick? Not, it wasn't Patrick initially, no. Patrick, uh, it it came later on, but I had met with him first. And I think a mutual friend brought us together and he couldn't travel, he's on parole. So I went to Arizona to see him. We had a very nice meeting. We talked about different things. And that's when it came up, you know, Sammy, you and I are kind of the main guys in this. You know, maybe we'll do something together. And that's how the thing started to, to happen. And then we brought Patrick, uh, Patrick actually came in afterwards and said, you know, maybe I can be the moderator. We can." That's how it all came out. I don't know exactly, but that's how it all came about.
0: So it was all civilized on the phone when you met him, yeah. but then it jumped off when it was on camera. Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, Sammy and I have a different perception of things. You know, he thinks he's in some ways, he's still mafia. I don't feel that way anymore, you know? Um, and we had, our differences of opinion on certain things, and it got a little bit heated, you know, but that's okay. But we re- resolved it afterwards, and we're probably going to do some things together in the future.
2: Is he quite hot-headed?
1: I mean, it, what you see is what you get with Sammy. You know, yeah. there's no. Uh, yeah, I mean, he has a he has a fuse. You know. So do I. I just control it a little bit differently than him, you know. He, he's he's a little bit more, you know.
0: I think that's what makes it such good viewing, because you're known as the gentleman of the mafia, like you're yeah. just a class act, and he gets on and he's this live wire, and he yes. can just explode at any second yes. over anything. Yes. And then you've got those personalities together, and it's mm-hmm. it's very good viewing. I hope you guys do do more together.
1: Yeah. Well, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, we have that uh, sit down was. Uh, uh, it's ten hours. We were there for two days.
0: Well, I screwed up because it looks so splendid—the setting and everything. Yeah. You know, you fly in and you're yeah. staying at that location. And what, what was it like? The location?
1: It was beautiful. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we we had a good time. Um, Patrick did a great job. Patrick does things right. He did a great job putting it together. Uh, and the finished product is brilliant. I have to say it. The comments coming back from people that have seen it are, t- are terrific. And it's, and it's real. I mean, this wasn't staged. It wasn't scripted in any way. Patrick just fired questions, and we, we went at it, you know. He got a little bit more vivacious than I thought he would be, Sammy, you know. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, these, it's amazing, Sean. Things came back to me from 30 years ago. Normally at a sit down, you have to be very respectful. You don't lose control. If we were at a real sit down, he would have been, somebody was told to put him in check because you don't do that. Not with two made guys, you don't do that. But you know, Patrick was not a made guy. He was a, you know, a newspaper guy, whatever you call it. But, but, uh, but it was real, yeah, it, it was real.
0: So how many days did it take to
1: shoot 10 hours? We shot for two, two and a half days.
0: And did he have to have, like, security on board?
1: We had security, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, it was quite uh, secluded. Yeah.
2: Can you talk the viewers uh, through what a sit-down is? What's that? What a sit-down is.
1: A sit-down, any time we had to resolve any kind of an issue among us, whether it be business, whether it be life or death for someone, it was always resolved in, hey, let's sit down. So that became the term. We're having a sit-down over this. Because these were very, uh, it could be very important meetings. Somebody's life could be at stake. And when you had two made guys, guys that took the oath sitting down, there were rules. You had to be very respectful. For instance, if Sammy was sitting across from me and he was lying through his teeth and I called him a liar, I lose. Can't do that. Can't be disrespectful. I had to figure out a way to expose him so that people would understand the guy who was in charge, you know, the boss, this guy's not telling the truth. And then things come in my favor. You had to be very cagey and the old timers, they were very cagey. They tried to trap you into making a mistake at the sit down. So you automatically lose. It's like in the United States, when you're taking a a driving test, right? You hit the curb as you're parking automatic failure. So it's the same. You could be a perfect driver, hit the, failure, hit the curb a little bit, automatic failure. Boom. Take another test. Same with the sit-down. You had to be very cagey in how you handle these things. We call that game cat and mouse, here. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of cat and mouse, yeah. yeah. So even if you were 100% right, you could lose. You know, then there's politics involved. So let's say, let's say the guy on the other side of the table was closer to the boss than you were. Well, automatically in his mind, he wants that guy to win. So you have to make such a presentation that he can't do that, you know? And I'm like, you know, going in, oh, I'm sitting with this guy, he's so close to the boss. I gotta I gotta really think about how I'm gonna win this, you know? So it's very, very technical. And then it could be a matter of life and death. I hate to say it, but you know, somebody gets in trouble, what's gonna happen with this guy? And we're gonna talk about it and uh, you know, if, if, uh, if it's that serious, then serious consequences.
0: Have you got any sit-downs that you particularly
1: remember that you
0: could describe?
1: Yeah, I mean, sit-downs with Gotti. and you know, There's a lot of them that I do remember because, Sean, it was like a way of life for me. Mm. When you become as, as high-profile as me, and, you know, I, I enjoyed some success in that life, people, you're sitting down all the time. And I had a big crew, and they're always getting in trouble. Always getting in trouble, you gotta sit down, bail them out, you know. Cause we had a, a you know, I had a couple hundred guys under me and they're in trouble here and there and there. You get a call, hey Mike, this guy, okay, we go sit down and wrong or right, we figure it out. So, and some of them were real serious. And then unfortunately, you know, those guys they made mistakes and you gotta try to bail them out or save them. And it, it gets, it gets touchy.
0: What happens if the mistake is irretrievable? Is there what? What happens if the mistake is too much? You can't bail them out.
1: Sometimes you just can't. You just can't, I mean, if it's that wrong and that's blatant a violation, what could you do?
2: Have you ever got into a sit-down fearing for your life?
1: One time. It wasn't so much the sit-down, it was getting to the sit-down. Yeah, you know, one of the horrors of that life, really horrors, is that You make a mistake you don't you know your best friend walks you into a room you don't walk out again and unfortunately it's it's a part of that life that's that's terrible really and you know i spent over 20 years in that life so obviously i i I know the experience but that happened to me one night you know i was walked into a room i didn't know if i was going to walk out again because some things were you know money you know, I'm making a lot of money and guys are getting a little nervous about it. And I had a big crew. So they really put me on the spot. <clears throat> Basically my boss wanted to make me understand that he's still the boss. So, but it was a very touchy situation. So I was nervous walking in, I'll be honest with you. You know, when you think you're gonna go, it's scary. And, uh, but it worked out, I'm here obviously, you know. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough, tough part of the life. So
0: sure, that was don't help shine the master. Huh? Don't outshine the master. No.
1: You don't do that. Never. Yeah. Because in that life, they, what do they feel? Take over. You're trying to get their spot, you know? You don't do that. Because, you know, w- one thing, one fallacy uh, uh, about what people think is that, from after, in the early part of, of Cosa Nostra, guys were killing each other, families were going to war with each other, war with each other. That stopped. After Luciano put everything together, that stopped. Whenever there's a war, it's always a civil war. It's internal. Now, some of the other families can have a little bit of, of influence on that, but they don't get involved physically in it. It's internal. So whenever it's a power thing, that's it. Hey, you're the boss, I want to be the boss, boom. Families go to war the two, within, the, within themselves. It's never a war among families. That doesn't happen.
0: It's almost like jails are microcosm, of that Because where I was, it was like the gangs, whites, blacks, Mexicans, if they had a, a war, we get locked down, drugs business gets stopped. So if a white guy and a black guy got a beef, the shot callers just send them in the cell under the stairs, squash mm-hmm. the beef, then they're having a the smoke afterwards, then the drug business doesn't get stopped. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's always over the top spot. <clears throat> yeah. Like when Persico, my boss went to jail, he put somebody else in charge, Persigo's going to jail forever. He's never coming home. So the guy in charge now wants to be the real boss. My boss Persigo, put somebody else as his acting boss. Mm-hmm. Said until my son, his son, his son, and me came in at the same times, we were the same age. He actually baptized my son John. We were gumbadas as they call it in Italian. So Persico, my boss junior, tells Vicarina, who was a captain at the time, "You're gonna." be acting boss until my son comes home from prison, and then he's taking the spot. Okay, that's the way he arranged Uh, Junior goes to jail forever. Marina's running the family. I don't want to give it up, he says. I want to be the boss. So, alley boy was coming home, the son. He said, I'm the boss, you're not the boss. He gets some men on his side. Junior still has men loyal to him. They go to war. When Junior found out about it, he took the first shot. He went after Arena and missed him. And then the war started.
0: Yeah. What do you think about the internal coup against Castellano?
1: Listen, you know, bottom line on this is that (laughs) Gotti knew he was in trouble. They were dealing drugs and some other things that were going on. He knew he was in trouble. And he made the first move, which was smart. That's what he had to do. Otherwise, you're waiting there to get killed. Doesn't make sense, right? So you have to act first.
0: Aren't you supposed to get a sanction, though from the five families?
1: You could, but you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's your your deal now. The other other family guys were not happy with what Gotti did. It wasn't popular.
0: Was it the Chin in petition? He was
1: not happy, yeah. They called okay. him the Chin because whenever anybody would talk about him, they'd go like this. So he didn't give himself the name because he didn't want you to, you weren't allowed to mention his name. If he found out you mentioned his name, he might kill you because he don't want no heat from the government. And he played like he was crazy. But people asked me, Mike, was he really crazy? I said, look, to play crazy for 30 years, you got to be a little crazy, right? <laughs> but when I met with him, he was smart as a fox.
0: Is it true that he wandered the streets in his nightclub? Yeah,
1: oh yeah. <laughs> I walked it with him, yes.
0: You didn't have to wear it like that. no, no, no. Hair,
1: hair all messy. No, his no uh, shave. His beard, right? And a and a house coat. House coat, yeah. Sne- uh, slippers. Walk up and down Houston Street, which is a busy street in New York, you know. And uh, we're just talking, talking, talking back and forth. Yeah, you couldn't even mention his name; it wouldn't let you. But he was really the power in New York.
0: So was that the main response from the Paul Castellano hit? was from the chin, was it to...?
1: Yeah, well, he went after Gotti after that, yeah. He he didn't like the fact that Gotti made that move. You know, I mean, bosses take it as an insult. You come after another boss without getting, without discussing it with us. That's not right, you know?
0: And you think Gotti's downfall then was, you know, he was talking to the media and he was out putting himself out in public and stuff?
1: Gotti's downfall, you know, there's a book that was just written by a guy by the name of uh, Gleason. He was a prosecutor that prosecuted Gotti. Then he became a federal judge, and now he wrote a book. And he tells the whole story. He said the, re- the reason Gotti went down is because he thumbed his nose in everybody's face. You can't do that. The government's got more power, more resources, and more time than anybody else. If you thumb your nose in their face like I am who I am, you're nobody, they're going to get you. And he, Gotti uh, motivated the whole government to come after him. So eventually you're going to go down. There's no question. They're going to get you. Complete
0: opposite of your father.
1: My father didn't do that. He tried to maintain a, a low profile. He was always respectful to law. But if the Kennedy thing is true, he didn't have a chance. My dad was framed on the bank robbery case. He was not a bank robber. He didn't order those bank robbers. I know from my own personal investigation, we spoke to all the witnesses. They told us straight out, we framed your father, but we needed a big name, your father. They wanted your father. We framed him. It was very easy. They robbed all the banks. They really robbed them. And all they did is said, Sonny told me to do it. That was it. And a few guys in between, you see, here's the problem, Sean. You probably know this experience. Some guys that my dad had around him were dealing with these bank robbers. So they were able to make the connection through these guys. My father got upset when he found out because these four guys were all drug addicts. They're all junkies. Mm. From the time I was a kid, my father put it in my head. He hated drugs, hated. He would make up stories about how the guys got themselves in trouble with drugs to scare me. I never, till this very day, I've never even smoked pot. So
2: did he get convicted purely on witness statements?
1: Purely on statements, Can nothing else.
0: America In the federal state,
1: yes. Yeah. You don't even need corroboration. One witness could get you convicted. I, think I could walk out of here today and say, Jennifer tried to kill me. I tell the government, if I'm believable, you're going to jail. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise. They, they
0: arrested the people in my case and they were getting them to sign Exhibit A, people who didn't even know me, saying that they worked for me. And they, they were coming out of court. I was going in court. They were coming out they were yeah. showing me. Look what they, do. they just tried to do. I don't
2: believe yeah. you can do that in the UK.
1: Absolutely. In the mm. federal state, yeah. At federal system, yes. Mm. How many years right. did your father serve? 40. 40? 40. 40 out of the 50. Holy shit. Yeah. You <laughs> said
2: in a previous interview about The Sopranos being quite fictional, nothing like what went on. Is there any other movies out there that you believe is totally off key?
1: Well, let me, let me tell you the few that are on point. The best movie, in my opinion, the most accurate, scene by scene by scene, was the uh, 1996 HBO movie, Gotti, with Armand DeSante and uh, with Anthony Quinn. Brilliant movie, very well done, and very accurate. Because the movie, uh, the the script really came out of a lot of the surveillance reports and the tapes. It was very accurate, and Armand DeSante, and they were brilliant. I, I watched that movie 20 times. It's so good. Godfather is in a different category, obviously. Brilliant movie. Godfather 1 and 2, brilliant. Fictional. A lot of fiction in that, but just brilliantly done. There's nothing bad you could say about any of it. Um, Goodfellas, pretty accurate, yes. Donnie Brasco, pretty accurate. Uh, Bronx Tale, accurately portrayed by Chaz. He did a brilliant job as the guy... I thought he portrayed a mob guy brilliantly. Uh, so they, they were good. Casino, pretty accurate. Okay, After that, there's so many out there that I won't even watch. Because to me, authenticity means everything, you know? Like, they're doing a television series based upon my life now. It's been in development two years. I work, probably put a hundred hours in with the writer. And the company is Kennedy Marshall, major company. Um, and they just casted the main guy to play Michael. I can't tell you who it is because they'll get mad at me. But they just casted Michael. Now they're casting Sonny, my father. And then they'll go into production uh, soon. But the writer, who's a brilliant writer, he's an A-list writer, he's done a lot of stuff, he's a California guy. So I said to him, his name is Ron Shelton. I said, Ron, you're brilliant. But you've never been to Brooklyn. So your dialogue is not going to be right. I said, so you, you and I have to have a deal. You give me the script and let me clean up the dialogue to make it Brooklyn. <coughs> he welcomed that, he said, great, Michael. The structure, the, the character development, the storyline, because I felt brilliant. But the dialogue, I, I, I had to do it. Because if a guy's supposed to be from Brooklyn, he's talking like California, ain't gonna work, right? But uh, I, I'm very, very happy with the end product right now. So.
0: You must watch a lot of stuff and just think it's pure cheese ball.
1: Yeah, a lot of stuff you watch. It's just you know, Sopranos look, I thought uh what's his name? Tony Soprano. I thought he was terrific. But really the story in the Sopranos, if you really look at it, what is it? It's about the family. That's what's interesting. The dynamic with him and his mother reminded me so much of me and my mom. My mom was tough, you know. His wife, the kids—that's the real story. There, it's not what the guys are doing, you know. A lot of that is, is, is good, and some of it is silly. But any of these story, any of these movies, *Peaky Blinders*. Oh my God, what a brilliant scene, <laughs> Sean! Brilliant. People were trying, people were trying to get me to watch that. For I turned it on. I couldn't understand them talking. I said, I can't watch this, right? This was about a year ago. Then my brother-in-law comes to me, he says, Mike, you gotta watch it. I said, I can't understand the way these guys are talking. He said, use the subtitles. I was
2: gonna say, did you put yes. the subtitles on? Yes. <laughs>
1: Once I started that, I couldn't stop. Brilliant. Oh my God. <laughs> are the accents that hard?
2: Huh? Are
1: the
2: accents that different? Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> to me, yes. For Birmingham, yeah.
1: Is, is it really quite be- difficult. La- Last time I was here, I did 12 or 13 dates. We go to the Isle of Man. I did a date there, right? It was great. Some guy comes up to me afterwards from Liverpool. I was about
0: to say, sure. the hardest.
1: Jennifer, he's talking to me for two hours. I didn't understand one word he was saying. I just kept shaking my head. Yeah, I must have been responding well because he wouldn't stop talking. I could not understand a word. That's why I told Kaz in the tour. I said, Kaz, you better have... If we're going to do q and A, Q&A, you better figure this out because I can't understand I'm going to be there. translating for you. <laughs> oh, you? yeah, yeah, because yeah, 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 you're so. hosting, right? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, offense sca-
0: no offense to no offense to Scousers. We are coming to Liverpool in August. If you want to get a ticket, it's going to be in the description box. I will translate, for Michael. Please, <laughs> I we'll know. We'll bring Wild Bomber as well.
1: Because a little bit, I can't, I can't hear sometimes. I have to read the lips, and if I don't get it, I, I, I don't know what you're talking what about. About
0: his accent.
1: I'm getting. I'm having a little, but that, I'm getting it. I'm 20 yes.
0: minutes. I'm 20 minutes from Liverpool. But when I went to America, they couldn't understand me. But it was a broader, more Manchester kind of northern uh-huh. accent. So I had to change to speak like this so that they could understand me in America when I was starting out. But when our, uh, my co defender came over, we had Wild Man and Wild Woman. So Wild Man's from my town, but Wild Woman's from Liverpool, so she's a Mad scouser, uh-huh. And they, were, you know, they they couldn't understand her. The lawyer was saying I needed to get a translator and all this. Couldn't. It's called Scouts. It's called Scouts. It's called Scouts. What they speak?
1: Yeah. will go scouts. It's on. Yeah, yeah. The other last week, I was in Cleveland. I was doing a date, and my wife was no, no, my wife wasn't with me. My brother-in-law was with me, and I'm on the phone with Kaz, the, our host for the tour, and there was uh, these fellas from an Indian, uh, from India, that have a production company that want to do a deal, right? So I'm in the car and we're driving to the airport, and the guys talking for a half an hour my hand to god i didn't understand one word not one word but i'm saying okay that sounds good and he's laying out five points of things he wants to do we hang up i said cas i don't know what the heck he was talking about i said i hope i said yes to the right things <laughs> <laughs> it's Case hard trouble, <laughs> yeah it's hard and you actually speak proper english yes. we speak american but i don't know
0: Thank you. I still still say things like I'm going to go to the grocery store. Yeah. (laughs) What
2: was it you called it? We went shopping the other day to, and you called it a shopping centre. The
0: mall.
2: The mall. The mall. The
0: malls here, huh? They do what? They don't call them malls. They don't call them malls. No. I think there's one in British. Shopping centre. Shopping centre. And the freeway is the motorway. Yes. I asked
1: guys, yeah, I said, "Do we have a freeway here? Because we're going all these side streets." Are you driving? Yeah, he was right. Yeah. No, me? Yeah. No, no. no. I mean, I could thing
0: things that a bit of a head? Yes, yeah. 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 Like,
1: when I went to get in the car, when he picked me up, I went in the driver's side, you know? Yeah, it's different, <laughs> it's different. People drive crazy here, yeah, yeah. but it's not as bad as Israel. I have a dear friend, I know him 30 years, he's Israeli. We go to Israel, we're doing something there. I can't believe it. They roll down the window, cursing each other out. They knock off the side view mirror on the car. <laughs> My wife was in the car with me and my daughter one day. Next day, we had to go someplace. She said, I'm taking a bus. I'm not getting back in the car. I said, come on, it's Moshe. He said, I don't care. You know, she wouldn't get back in the car. I don't blame her.
0: Jen got arrested in Israel, but we'll tell you that story you? later. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> of all Mafia movies then, and the roles that these guys are playing, who, who's your favorite roles and actors?
1: Okay, I actually have three. Number one, Armand DeSante. Well, actually, I'm going to say four. Armand DeSante and Anthony Quinn in the Gotti movie. Brilliant. Armand DeSante, and they could play anything. They're just brilliant. He, be, he became a good friend of mine. So, Armand DeSante, Anthony Quinn. Um, Joe Pesci. Oh, yeah. Dynamic. Lights up the screen. Was brilliant. Oh, I, I didn't mention The Irishman. Was very well done. Fictional. Sheerhan did not kill Hoffa, 100% wrong. Everybody knows that, but uh, but he was brilliant as Ross Buffalino, somebody that I knew fairly well. Played a total uh, different from every other mob role that he played. He was always a crazy guy. Buffalino was very calm, same way. He played him brilliant. So it's uh, Armand DeSante, Anthony Quinn, Joe Pesci, and in the movie, oh, Donnie Brasco. Donnie, Donnie Brasco. Brasco. Pacino, that was his most brilliant role as far as I was concerned. He captured, uh, Lefty, I knew him well. He captured him and he played that role brilliantly. So those four are my top, top guys. Do do you think
0: the murder of Whitey was intentional then if the feds like put him in an area where he could get accessed?
1: You know what Sean, the feds make mistakes. Mm. They really do. Um, Look, Henry Hill was in separation from everybody They put him in Terminal Island when I was there with 10 other mob guys. It was an accident. After after he'd already rolled over. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the word on Henry was shoot to kill. You see him, kill him. And they put him in there. It was an accident because he was on separation. and the feds, they put you on separation from people they don't want you with. It was a total mistake. So it could have been a mistake with Whitey Bulger. They, They make those mistakes. Was it intentional? I tend to think not. Because I know that they screw up a lot. They let guys out that are supposed to be doing 100 years. They let them uh, walk out of a courtroom. Doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen.
0: How often does it happen where they're working with FBI like that? Oh,
1: who's that? Snitches. People
0: people in the lifestyle who are murdering other people and they're working with the authorities to wipe out the competition?
1: You know what, Sean, unfortunately, unfortunately it happens more than we would like to know it. I mean, guys are working. When we found out Greg Scarpa was dealing with the government for 20 years, I got nervous because I, you know, I did things with Greg. I said, "My gosh, another guy, Willie Boy Johnson, who was a gaudy guy, but I was friendly with him. I was shylock like of money with him, working with the feds for 20 years. You know, when you hear this, it's like so. It's it's probably happening more than we know until we know because it always comes out later on." Um, that's why the street is a tough life, man. You don't know who to trust. You don't know what's going on. You know? Tough.
0: One of the books I read inside was Man of Honor, Joe Bonanno Sr. Ended up living in the Sinvacus neighborhood where I was living before I got arrested. Shaking your head, what? what not a man, not a
1: man of honor, not a man of honor. Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous <laughs> book. There's no reason to write a book <laughs> like that. And, and Giuliani will tell you that's what motivated him to go after the mafia. He read the book, Giuliani's Italian. He got so insulted by the book. And he said that Joe Bonanno laid out the entire commission case in that book. He laid it out to him. He told him, he gave him the blueprint on how to go after the guys. The book betrayed the life in a big way. That's what motivated Giuliani to do what he do. He said to me, Michael, that gave me the blueprint to go after the the bosses. And he was right, because he got them all. What was your reason for writing? It was so stupid. Was
0: he, did he do that after he got run out of New York? Was he yeah. He, That's why he got he did run it.
1: out of New York. He writes the book. I mean, look, Sean. You can't take the mafia and try to make them like they're the nice people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't do it. You're going you're gonna to insult Italian-Americans, first of all. So many people get insulted by the book because the mafia is the mafia. Cosa Nostra is Cosa Nostra. You know you can't turn it around and make it some benevolent organization and that's what he tried to do. It was ridiculous. He insulted people.
2: So when you were making all those millions, what was your typical day? I'm not visualizing it an extravagant like lifestyle, cars, meals, for restaurants. But you that's want to lay, low, does. don't you don't want to be flashy like we, in. Yeah,
1: you know, um Again, because I was so active, I was very aggressive. I was a worker. So I was working a lot, you know, because when I became a captain in that life, I had a lot of guys under me. I I had a lot of legitimate businesses. I had car agencies. I had a production company. I had restaurants that I had. So, you know, I was maintaining control of all of this. And then, of course, the gas business, which was my major operation, took a lot of time and effort. So I was working constantly. But along the way, I was enjoying myself, for the most part. I mean, I had a jet plane, I had a helicopter, I had houses in three states, I had, you know, boats, I had a lot of stuff. So we would make time for leisure. And, look, I had a good time with my crew. We had some guys who were very close. And we, I was always around guys, and we had a good time, you know, along with everything else that we were doing. But, you know, did it lead to my downfall? Yeah.
2: And the police took everything.
1: Well, they took a lot, yeah. They didn't take everything. You know, one of the reasons I took a plea, you know, um, uh, of course, because I met my wife, I fell in love with her, and Sean, I realized this life is, it's over. Especially somebody like me, who had a target in his back from day one because of my dad. And then when I started to make my own way, boom, I mean, it became even more intense. You know, I don't know if you know this, but they had a 14 agency task force made up of state, local, and federal uh, agencies it was at Michael Francie's task force, where their sole job, they would meet in the Cornhouse house of Uniondale, Long Island, and their sole job was to take me down and put me away forever. Now, I didn't know this until later on, but I said to myself, what shot do I have here? I don't care how many cases I beat, how much money I got to keep spending, they're going to get me, there's no doubt, and they're going to put me away for a long time. That's when I realized after I beat the Giuliani case, I had leverage. I said, okay, they, they lost five times with me. They called Gotti the Teflon Don. They lost five cases against me. <laughs> now it's not as publicized, but five times, they really wanted a conviction. Giuliani thought he had me and boom, I'm, I'm acquitted. So now the next case comes up. I said, okay, I got leverage. I met this woman, I want to marry her, I'm in love. I wanna get out of this life because eventually I'm going to jail forever. How can I use this leverage? That's when I told my lawyer, let's take a plea because here's what happened to me, Sean, you'll understand this. My partner in the gas business turned informant and Giuliani brought him in to testify in that case and we destroyed him on the witness stand. So now I destroyed the gas case major witness destroyed him. So now the government is worried. Hey, he beat this guy. He's the major witness against him. Maybe he'll lose again. So I said, let's offer a plea. Okay, great. 25 years and a $100 million fine. I said, listen, I don't care if they ask for $300 million. I ain't paying them anyway. Let them have a judgment against me. I didn't care. My lawyer was smarter than me then because he said, no, Michael, because they're going to haunt you for the rest of your life. You're, you're going to make money in your life. You don't need that. So he talked me out of that. I said, 25 years, no good. I said, five years. I knew they weren't gonna give me five. We settled on 10. We still had parole back then. Now in the system, no parole, but back then you had parole. I said, I'll do five. I can handle that. My wife will handle that. A marriage will be set up. And when I did it, I said, look, I don't want my wife to work while I'm in jail. I said, so I need money. Part of the money I gotta be able to keep. Okay, they gave me that. House I got, I'm gonna keep that. I gave them my plane, I gave them all the other stuff. I said, but my personal stuff to take care of my wife, there's no negotiation. So they allowed me to have that. So she had money while I was away. She had a house over her head, you know, she had a car and all, I don't have to worry about that. I don't want to worry. I said this is enough for five years, we'll be okay. Oh, you got was the
0: Sundalses. I did something very similar then, because um, when they arrested Sammy's crew, mm-hmm. all 57 rolled. But when they arrested my only four rolled. 57 rolled in Sammy's crew? All of them. Okay. We had over 100 of my only four rolled. So we're like, we've got plea bargain in power now. Uh-huh. We fought the case for 26 months. Right. And at the end, we just gave them everything, agreed to be banned from America for life.
1: And um, are you banned now Yeah, America? yeah. So
0: I got nine and a half. And because we had this oh. lawyer loophole lawyer, I had to do just under six on it, as a first-time non-violent drug offender who was not a U.S. citizen.
2: Did your wife at the time get to keep
0: any? How out? much? No. no.
1: How much time did you actually do? It's just under six. Just under six. Yeah. In, in
0: America. In Arizona. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the that's where. Time? Yeah, that's yeah. where I met Gerard. Was in in Tavis jail originally. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you did yeah. all
1: the time in that Arizona. Sp- in Arizona. What
0: was the name of that jail again? In Black Sheriff Joe Arpaio's uh, Maricopa oh, County Jail stay- system. Y- All state, all state, yeah. 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 But
1: anyway, so that's what happened. So Mm. I was able to negotiate on that part, you know. Mm. And then my plan was, there was no cooperation, no cooperation. Then my plan was, okay, I get out of jail, I move to California, I have parole. I use that as an excuse because you meet with people on parole, they they give you separation, you meet with somebody, you're violated. I use that as an excuse not to meet with the guys in New York Maybe after 10, 12 years, they'll forget about me. But then it became public that I was walking away and then all hell broke loose in my life, but it it didn't work out the way I planned it, but.
0: Some people say you can never quite walk away from it. It could catch up upon you at any time. Do you still think there's an element of that in your life? Yes. Do you have to live accordingly?
1: Do you
2: look over your shoulder?
1: It's not looking over my shoulder. I always look over my shoulder, it's instinct. I'm walking down the street, I hear a footstep. I'm looking back you know when I'm with my wife I mean, it's, and I'm always looking around to see who's around me. That's instinctual. It's never changed, even when I was on the street up, right up until now, so just part of who I am. But you know, I don't worry about it i don't I don't live I don't have bodyguards all over me unless I'm going to a place where because look, you don't dumb your nose in somebody's face. That's the problem. you know people are, really you want to be a wife? okay, you want then then you get them angry i don't want to do that you know but i don't bother them i'm not hurting anybody i don't want to hurt anybody i don't talk bad about anybody why you know it it, it don't make sense so i i don't live in in fear but look sean knows this he's a high profile guy i'm a high profile guy it's like anything else when you're high profile anything you get You know, yesterday in New York, some lunatic went into church and shot people. Another guy in Buffalo, New York, killed 10 or 20 people in a shopping mall. People, you don't know what they're going to do. So you you always have to think about it, but you can't live in fear.
0: In your dealings with other Mafia's then, like Russians or Colombians, was the etiquette different than within the Italian
1: Mafia? I had Russian partners, best partners I had up until that point. Got along, great. They, they don't have a structure like we had. They were more family, close-knit that way. And whoever was making the most money became the leader. That's how we viewed it, at least that's how I saw it. But they didn't have a structured organization like we had.
2: You said they didn't fear the system either. No. You said they were ruthless.
1: Yeah, one of the guys did time in a Russian prison. He said, Mike, you think I'm worried about the government here? I said, okay, good yeah no they were you know they they were very good partners. We made a tremendous amount of money together, and uh you know we cut a, n- a good deal between us and we we both honored it, and that was it
0: Cause I've written a lot about Escobar and the Colombians, and we, we're about to do the book for the son of the Cali cartel mm-hmm. Did you have any dealings with the Colombians?
1: No, only in prison. I met with a couple of guys, but really, Sean, I wasn't interested in drugs, I didn't want to be involved in it it was. It was two things. It was a moral issue for me, because my sister died of an overdose of drugs. My brother was a, a drug addict for over 25 years, and he, they put us through hell. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you. My sister, who I loved, my baby sister, you know, and I would, I would ha- have to go looking for her. And I'd find her in these flea-bit places with guys sticking something in her arm you want to know the truth i did more damage to people as a result of my sister than i did in my whole time in that life because you know you see your baby sister you love her and somebody's abusing her you go nuts it's re- i don't care if you're in the mob or, or not you go crazy anybody would but it happened so often with her and my brother too you know my brother would have been dead a hundred times if it wasn't for me and my dad because of the things he got involved in, drug-wise, you know? Tell we had to save him so many times.
2: How old was your sister when she
1: died? 27. Oh my God. Yeah, she was young, a beautiful girl, and you know, just, uh, those drugs are just terrible. Yeah.
0: One of my favorite interviews is with you, Mike Tyson, and the chemistry. What, how did your relationship with Mike Tyson start?
1: Through another guy that, uh, Knows him for 20-some-odd years. He he knows him way back to the Gus days. And we became friends, and then he introduced me to Mike. Well, actually, no, I met Mike first. Yeah, I met Mike when he got in touch with me to go on his show, on hot boxing or whatever it is. And he reached out to me. I don't know how. I had met him once or twice before that, just, you know, hello and goodbye. Um, Because I was always interested in fights. The fight game was, I loved it. And then a mutual friend brought us together even closer. Funny story, I I asked Mike, uh, we were all out to dinner, me, my wife, his wife, and I said to him, Mike, I said, I can't get into this MMA stuff. I was always a fight. I love boxing. I said, do you like it? He looked at me, he says, Mike, two cockroaches could be on the table together fighting and I'm interested. (laughs) He said, I don't care what kind of fighting it is, just like that, it made me laugh. But uh, he's a good guy. Mike, very sincere and very honest. he has no filter, whatever's in his head is in his mouth, but we became pretty tight he's a, He's a good guy, I like him a lot, and we're going to do some things together actually oh, fantastic yeah. on
2: the scale of one to ten, how charismatic is he
1: very yeah he's yeah very he oh yeah, yeah yeah, yeah he's yeah. very animated when he talks he'll laugh like crazy if something's funny to him yeah he's he's a good guy yeah, I, I I'm I could say this as a fellow guy from, from Brooklyn, I'm proud of Mike, the way he's turned himself around. I really am. I think he got a bum rap with that rape charge that he was on. I mean, I know the particulars of it, it was a bum rap. But, uh, you know, and he's, he's very sincere, very honest. I mean, he'd have been dead if he didn't get involved in boxing and Customato, who he loved. If Customato was alive, he would have never gotten in trouble because he looked up to him like he was God. And, and i don't mean that you know disrespectfully to the god but but uh you know he was just uh, a trouble soul he had to get over a lot of things, but you know he he would have never he would have been undefeated forever. I mean it because even the, you know you shake his hand and you know there's power there mm. trust me
0: yeah we're good friends with Big Joe Egan shout out to Joe we're publishing his book, Toughest White Man on the planet if you want to watch it. You, you've got a relationship with Joe as well, though.
1: Yes, 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 yeah, I, uh, we sat down, loved the interview with Joe. He was, as a matter of fact, Joe is the guy who introduced me to Kaz to put this whole tour together, you know? So I, I, uh, I spoke to Mike and I mentioned Joe to him. And before I said a word, he said, toughest white man on the planet. <laughs> he repeated it again, he repeated it again. But you know what, when, when Joe tells you the story, he said, when he went to first spa with him, yeah, he's seen all these guys getting knocked out. <laughs> I, said, I said to him, Joe, how did it feel? He says, Mike, he says, I, he said it was like electric shock when he hit me in the chest. It went right through my whole body. Yeah, he's such a good guy, Joe.
0: If you wanna watch our podcast with Big Joe Egan, it's coming out soon and it? it's gonna be called From Mike Tyson to Michael Francis. <laughs> <laughs> Out of time here, yeah, Michael. You, you've been very gracious um, yes. with us
2: today. So, what
1: is the talk about? <laughs> Sorry, you, you know, it's about my life. We're going to have some great hosts. One of them sitting right next to you. Jen might be coming a yeah. uh, Okay, yeah. Jen, that'd be great. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Funcrating. we're going to talk. You know, you know, Sean. People are interested in my life, right? I, I tell you this quickly before we wrap up. I'm in Singapore. Now, I never realized this. When you're part of the life, this is your life. You live it, and that's it, day to day. When I got out of the life and I started speaking, I never realized how intriguing this life is to everybody all over the world, all over the world. I'm in Singapore, speaking in front of 1,800 people. My host says to me, Mike, we promised a Q&A. He said, but don't worry about it. I ain't worried. He said, but but uh, Singaporeans don't ask questions. They're very reserved, very proper. He said, we're going to put a shill in. Maybe you get one or two questions. I <laughs> said, great. We'll go home early. Jennifer two hours (laughs) now i'm looking around i said are they going to stop
0: this
1: (laughs) but how how uh informed they were they asked questions about Gotti and the movies and everything jimmy hoffa where's he buried i said wow all over the world the same thing so here i know you don't have a mafia presence here really You you know you don't thank thank god but uh I feel comfortable to talk about some things I've never spoken to before in the States. You know, I'm a little careful with what I do, but they're gonna hear about my life. They're gonna hear about the mob life like they've never heard it before. They're gonna know the truth about it, ins and outs and that, certain stories that I haven't told before I'm gonna talk about. And then we're gonna do a and A. And I always say, ask me anything you want. I've been asked everything under the sun. And if I don't wanna answer, I don't answer. I know how to do it, right? But I answer questions. We're gonna have a good time. The way the host is setting it up, I'm, I'm excited. They're all, mostly all dinner shows. All, you know, uh, uh, very well done, I would say. So we're gonna have a great time, great time. I'm looking forward to it. start of July 2nd at the Grosvenor. It's gonna be the big opening night, red carpet. They're doing a the whole bit. I got a great host, you know, on this. He's really, really doing the right thing. And then we're gonna go around the country. We're going to Scotland, I think Wales also we may even hop over to Ireland, which is not part of the UK, right? Ireland is not, where it is? Well, no. north, and south. north and south. All right, well, I don't know which part we're going to, but we're going <laughs> there. And then uh, just have a great time.
2: While you're in Europe, are you going to be visiting Italy? Ab-
1: absolutely. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I love, my wife and I, we love Italy. We spent uh, a week at Capri uh, a couple of years ago. It was like being in paradise, you know? When I first went to Italy, I had everybody telling me, Mike, I'm going to give you a restaurant to go to. And I said, Leave me alone. I said, I want to pick my own spots. I don't, I don't want to hear anything. So every restaurant we went to was great. We just picked a spot, mm-hmm. everyone was terrific. Oh, so no. you can't miss, right? But well, yeah, we're going to spend some time in Italy. Uh, we, we may move around a little bit while we're here, yeah.
0: So if you've enjoyed this podcast as much as us, come to the shows, the links for all the venues, the dates, how you can get them, are going to be in the description box. Please go over and join the subscribers Marching to a Million on Michael's YouTube channel. He's at 800 and something thousand. I checked it this morning. Blasted past me and he's, he's well <laughs> on his way to a million really <laughs> Shout out to Sammy the Bull as well. He's doing amazing. I love listening to his stories Hope we can do some collaborations with him and all of the social links everything will be down there in the description box as well all of Jen's links as well if you want to check out her stuff on Instagram and Let us know in the comments what you thought of, about this and we look forward to seeing some of you at the show and check his books out as well. Oh, huge thank you, Michael. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so